Today we are going to wrap up a series and also start a season at the same time. The timing of this is really interesting and, and maybe even perfect. As we, the, the, scripture, the scripture passage that you just had read to you is really a perfect text of scripture to end our series on generosity. We've been on a series for the last several weeks called The Generous Life. And even today, as it is the first Sunday of a season called Advent, it's the first Sunday of the Christmas season, uh, we are turning our attention towards celebrating the coming of the Messiah. And that is, that's exciting. We should be super pumped up about the idea that we get to celebrate that Jesus has come and that we get to celebrate Christmas every year as, a, as a, a moment to slow down and to commemorate the coming of the Savior of the world. And you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years now, one of the ways that we have been marking the, the coming of the Messiah has been to give each other gifts. And you might not be aware of this, but the giving of gifts at Christmas is actually rooted in the passage of Scripture that you just heard a moment ago out of the Gospel of Matthew. And so today, to end our series on generosity and to launch us into this season of Advent, let's talk about gift giving. And so if I could give this message a title for you today, I would call this, this message something like, How to Be Generous to God. And so as we are inspired by these three wise men who came and give, gave gifts, let's wrap up our series on being generous people by examining what it looks like for us to give gifts to the Savior of the world. Now, think about what happened in that moment. The Messiah come, came. He was the one that was prophesied for all of these generations before, that he was going to come and set everything right. And certainly there was all kinds of expectation and thoughts on what that was going to look like and, and what, what the Messiah was going to do in the, in the world. But the expectation was higher than, than it had been for anything else, for the Messiah to come. And these wise men had read some of the signs of the times and they had figured out that, you know what, we think he's actually come now. The, they were aware that the greatest gift in all of human history had been sent into the world, and they wanted to mark this moment. And so what do they do when they want to mark the moment? They do the same thing that, that we do when we think that there's a special person that has come into our vicinity, is we do whatever we can to get into the same room with that special person. Right? People go from all, all over the world to, to be in the same room with whatever pop star. I mean, when, when Taylor Swift's album uh, went out, right? it crashed Spotify. And when her ticket sales went up, uh, it like, dismantled a website. The world ended for like 15 minutes just because people were so desperate to be in the same room as a singer. And I'm not disparaging that. That's fine. I'll go to a concert. Uh, I don't know if I'll go to a Taylor Swift concert, but, but I'll go to a concert. I want to be in the same room as the people that I admire. Or if there's like, I mean, let's make this Christian for a second. If there's a preacher that I really respect and he's coming into town, maybe I want to go to the conference and, and listen to the man of God or the woman of God preach the word because I really respect the way that they see the word or communicate, right? So, so people that we admire and revere, we want to be 
in the same space as them. And so these guys went to extreme lengths to be in the same space as the person that they considered to be in human form the greatest gift that had ever been given to the world. And then they said, you know what, it's not enough for us just to be in the same room because this is actually not just about us. We're not going just to to hear the king uh, perform his kingly baby cries for us. We're actually coming to honor this king. We're actually coming to give gifts to the greatest gift that was ever given to the world. And so as we read this story about the wise men, I understand that it is only one simple sentence in a very long story of, uh, that we call the Christmas story. But listen to it again as you consider what these men were doing. It says, entering the house. This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And and think about the wait, the anticipation, the journey, how long generations of people have been waiting for this gift to come into the world. And now it makes sense for you to understand or for you to read that it says, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So these wise men, uh, we don't know that there were three wise men. We kind of assume that there were three because there were three gifts. We sort of think like, you know, one guy per gift. We don't know that for sure. It could, be, could have been 30 dudes with three gifts. We actually don't know that, uh, but we would just call them the three wise men. Uh, the, the actual term for the era, would, would, we would have referred to these guys as magi, but we call them wise men uh, because it's helpful for us to understand sort of their role in societies, that they were the men who held a certain amount of wisdom and then would dispense that to the people that they would serve in their community. And so these men, in their wisdom, came with three gifts. And I propose to you today, and this is the, the, way, the framework that we're going to examine these gifts, is that each of these gifts can serve and does in fact serve as a metaphor for us or a picture for the sort of gift that we are invited to come and give to the King of Kings, not just in the Christmas season, but every day of our lives. And so with that in, in mind, let's look at the three gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus and consider how we ourselves can be generous gift givers to Jesus uh, with our own lives. And so the first gift that they gave was the gift of gold. Now, gold in Scripture is mentioned over 400 times. And as you see gold mentioned in Scripture, it is connected to success and resource and royalty. Uh, in fact, it was very common for, for gold to be given as a gift from one royal person to another royal person. Uh, so gift, gold was a, a common gift for kings and queens. Now, having gold was certainly a marker of status and success. I mean, just imagine right now if I just, you know, rocked up to service with a big bag of gold. That's going to be a marker of status and success, and you're going to be wondering, what have you been doing on the side that, that you have a big bag of gold? But there's going to be a marker of status and success if I just show up with this bag of gold. So if having gold, it marks my success and my status, imagine what giving gold says about you. Man, I'm so hooked up that I can give my gold away, right? Uh, that also speaks to a, a marker of generosity in the person's heart that is giving. But to give gold is to offer something of your own success and status to the, to the recipient of the gift that you are giving. 
Now, we automatically can jump to this conclusion that there is nothing of greater value than human life. Would you agree with that? Nothing is of greater value than human life. And God actually made it very clear that he places high value, maybe even highest value on our lives. So much so that he sent his only son to rescue us from death. I mean, consider what John 3.16 says. You know this passage, but listen to it in the New Living Translation where it says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And later on in the scriptures, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver. So your life is of the highest value, and he didn't just pay for your life with gold or silver. He paid for it with something of much greater value. It was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. If that doesn't tell you how much your life is worth to God, then I don't know that there is anything that can communicate that besides that. That God values you so much that he gave his very life to purchase your life. And as we reflect on the generosity of God this Christmas and every season of our lives, we are invited to then be generous in return. And so for us, our gold is the life that we have been given. Which is good. Some of you are thinking, oh, thank God, because I don't have any gold. So I wanted this to be a metaphor. This is a metaphor, and it is a picture of the life that you have been given. And so giving gold, then, is a picture of the submission of your entire life to Jesus as your king. We have this conversation a lot that Jesus is our savior, but it's not enough for him just to be your savior if he's not also the Lord and king of your life. It's not enough for me just to give lip service to Jesus and say, I believe the gospel story, or yay for the Christmas story. I I believe in all of that. But you then have to submit your life to this king so that he then gets to be the dictator of your decisions, that he gets to be the one who is the decider of how you live every single day of your life. That's what it means to bring your gold to Jesus, to submit your life to Jesus. So giving gold is an important place to begin. It's the first of the three gifts for a reason, because it requires self-sacrifice. It is the foundational place to begin in gift-giving in our generosity to God. The reality is that anyone can come close to the kingdom. Right? Anybody can, say, can sing a song and, and say a prayer. Anyone can come close. Anyone can say, I'm really interested in that Jesus thing. Or a modern expression of this is, anybody can say, I'm religious. Or, or maybe you've heard someone say, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. I don't know if I believe in all that Christianity stuff, but I've got a spirituality that's deeply meaningful to me, and I'd really rather just keep it to myself. Anybody can say all of those sorts of things, but only the wise will submit to the king of kings and give what is of greatest value to him as a gift, their very 
life. Think about King Herod. You heard about him in the story, right? He's the guy that sends the wise men on to worship Jesus. I, I want to give a, 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 wor- a gift of worship to this new coming king. When in reality, Herod was afraid for his own throne. He said with his mouth that he wanted to give a gift of praise to this, this newborn king, but what he actually wanted to do was protect and build his own kingdom. And he actually becomes a metaphor for us as well. How many times do I say with my mouth that I want to worship Jesus, but what I actually mean is, Jesus, I really want you to build my comfort and kingdom. So the invitation of giving gold to Jesus is to be self-sacrificing. In fact, bringing your gold to Jesus means that your entire life becomes a gift for his glory and not for my own. Paul encourages us, to have this kind of generosity in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Just just a, a, a brief thought here is that Paul is saying, that the gift that you give to God is the kind he will find acceptable. Not your standard, but his standard. And God's standard is all of you. Right? So submission of your entire life to Jesus becomes an act of worship. The author Sylvia Gunter put it this way. She says, worship involves self-surrender. It dethrones self. We submit he draws near. We see him, we lose sight of ourselves. Worship is self-forgetful and self-giving. It springs from renouncing self as our idol. Again, to develop a life of submission to God is a gift of worship to him as the king of our lives. Consider that even the Hebrew word for worship means literally to bow down. There's a distinction in scripture between the word praise, which is very much oriented around music, the songs that we sing and the instruments that we play. We were engaging in communal praise just a few minutes ago when there was a team of musicians up here singing, leading, playing songs. That was praise. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is what you do with your life when you recognize that you're standing before an authority figure that is higher than you, and so you bow your life down. You can do that physically. We see it physically when a person enters into the throne room of a king or a queen. They bow down physically, and we do that with our lives as an act of worship. All of this is tied together in what it looks like for you to give the gold of your life. We bring Jesus our gold as we bring him our worshipful submission in every area of our life. And we do that because as the king of kings, he's worthy of the best. He just simply is worthy of the best. And then we do that also because to place your your gold somewhere is to say, this is the place I am trusting as my resource or the source of my blessing. If you keep your gold to yourself then, because you're trying to be like Herod and really actually just build up your own kingdom no matter how good you're actually singing the song. But if you keep your gold to yourself, then you actually then need to be the resource for your own blessing. Which is why we have a lot of people saying all of the right Christian stuff and wondering why God never answers their prayers. And so self-sacrifice becomes the place to begin. 
as we bring our gold to Jesus. Consider uh, that, that God is going to make good on, the, on him being the resource for our blessing if we bring him our gold. In Psalm 37, verse 5, it says, Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him, and he will help you. Commit everything you do to the Lord. James 4, 7 says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. As you humble yourself to God and resist the devil, then, then the devil will flee from you. In that order. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. So the generous life becomes an invitation to bow your entire life to Jesus as a gift to the King of Kings. We would then want to ask ourselves, is there anything that you're holding back from the king? But let's not make this moment too awkward. Let's, we'll just move on to the next point. We'll come back around to that. Jesus got frankincense. Not Frankenstein, frankincense. Frankincense was, uh, it's a white vegetable uh, resin. It has a bitter taste. It's not something that you want to eat, but it was actually used for sacrificial fumigation. It was, it was a part of the incense offerings that were given, uh, that, the, that the Jewish priests would actually keep burning. And so one, it was actually one of the ingredients that perfumed the sanctuary. You can read that in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, and then it was also a seasoning for meat offerings. You can read about that in the book of Leviticus. Uh, frankincense was burnt in honor of God's name and specifically during times of prayer inside and outside of the temple. And an interesting note is that frankincense was actually known as a healing agent. It was commonly used in ancient medicinal practices as an anti-inflammatory. It was used to boost the immune system. It was used to heal wounds and even treat specifically things like arthritis. And then for other reasons, but it was, it was like old school Advil, frankincense. So frankincense was used by Jewish priests, and then it was also used for medical purposes. So think about this now. The wise men have given gold to Jesus as the king of kings, but they give frankincense to Jesus as the high priest and great physician. So frankincense was uh, burnt, and then it released this sweet smell. It had a bitter taste, but a sweet smell. And the concept of that is that the sweet smell would then symbolize the prayers of God, go, uh, the prayers of the people going up to God as a sweet aroma uh, to him in the heavenly places. And so frankincense serves as a metaphor for our dependency on and our trust in Jesus as our high priest. Gold becomes the symbol of our lives submitted to him. This is the place we begin, so that then we can give him frankincense, our trust as we come to him in prayer, believing that he is our high priest, that he hears our prayers, and that he actually has power to respond to our prayers as well. We gift Jesus our frankincense simply in this way, when you pray. The priests actually would keep incense burning perpetually in the temple. They never, uh, they never let the incense, uh, specifically the frankincense incense, uh, go out. It served as a reminder to the Jewish people that God received their prayers and that their responsibility was to always be bringing their prayers to God. Scripture uh, links prayer to incense 
in a couple of different places. In Psalm chapter one, uh, Psalm 141, at the very beginning of that psalm, it says, O Lord, I am calling to you. Please hurry. Listen when I cry to you for help. Accept my prayers as incense offered to you and my upraised hands as an evening offering. That's in the book of Psalms. And then all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it says, And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And it's believed that that incense was the same incense that would have been burned in the temple under the Old Covenant. The prayer that represented the, 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 the frankincense burning that represented the prayers being lifted up to God for his people. And then all the way at the end, here's what God communicates. All those prayers, I'm keeping those. I hear those. Your prayers are not just desperate words lobbed up to an unhearing God in heaven uh, up into the, the hopeless void of emptiness where maybe one day we'll get lucky and call that answered prayer. Your prayers are heard by God. They are kept by God. They are so valued by God that they rise up to the throne room of heaven and he keeps them every single one. Did God actually... Think about this then. This means that God considers your prayers such a valuable gift that he keeps them to the very end of time itself. This is significant. God values your prayer. Doesn't that mean then that to be generous with God doesn't just mean I submit to him my life. I don't just give him my day, but I also gift to him my prayer. And as I do that, not only am I filling that bowl of incense that's going to, to be there in the day that that verse in Revelation becomes a present reality for us, I'm gifting him also my trust in that moment. I'm, I'm saying, God, I believe in you, not just as king and God, but as the one who provides for me. I think this is, this is actually really, really important. God is not just happy to receive your prayers, but he's also faithful to answer your prayers. This is actually why it's a gift for God to answer our, our prayers. Think, think about it this way. I'm a dad. I've got two daughters. And one of the things that really fills my tank is when my kids come to me with a need. And I can actually answer it. It's rough when they come to me with a need like, can you help me with this math problem? Because then we're all very aware that I'm a limited human being and I, I don't, I'm not good at everything. right? That's when we call uh, the tutors Uncle Danny. We call Uncle Danny. Um, but man, when my kids come to me with like an interpersonal relationship problem, I go, oh yeah, this is my bread and butter. I'm absolutely so good at this. Let's sit down and figure this out. Or when they come to me and say, I don't know that I have the right words to say what I'm trying to say, right? Oh yeah, I, I speak for a living, so I can actually help you with that. Or when they come to me and they say, I'm not sure that I understand something in scripture. Uh, when, when they come to me with a need and I can help them, Man, that fills my tank. That makes me feel so good. Do you know it's actually a gift in that moment for them to come to me and say, Dad, I trust you with this need. That's a gift. And what a terrible dad I would be to say, thank you so much for your trust. I now will not respond to you at all. Isn't it wild how often we actually project that kind of parenting style onto God? 
But God wants us to have confidence to pray to him, not only knowing that he hears our prayers, but that it, it's a gift for him to receive them, and it, is, it brings him joy to answer our prayers as well. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, it says, And we are confident that he hears us when we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us we, when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Or John 14, verse 13, Jesus himself says, you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Now, we don't have time to get too deep into that, but when Jesus says you can ask anything in my name, he doesn't mean, well, in that case, I'm going to ask for a bag of gold in the name of Jesus and then I'm just going to get it. The caveat here is you can ask anything in my name and I'll do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. So if what you ask brings glory to the Father, then God will do that. God is pleased. Jesus is happy to answer those kinds of prayers. And in John 15, 7, again, Jesus says, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. Again, the, the nuance here is that if you, the word of God remains in you, then what you naturally ask for will be the things that agree with the word of God. And when you ask for those things that agree with the word of God, oh my goodness, it brings God so much pleasure. In fact, another place in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus himself says, it is my father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven. It, it actually is a gift to God when we engage him with our prayers. And then our response is to do what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to quit your entire life and never talk to anybody ever again and only ever pray. And then the next time your spouse or your parents call you or your kids want to come and talk to you or your boss asks you to do a job and you say, sorry, I can't do any of that right now. I'm praying without ceasing. That's just, that's weird. Let's not, let's not be like that. What God is saying is he's saying when you pray, make sure you continue to pray for that thing until you see your response. And that response might be, don't pray for that thing anymore because that doesn't actually align with my will for you, so pray for something different. And so the response to the prayer might be a lesson, or the response might be a blessing. And God would say, yes, I will answer that prayer the way that you asked me to answer it. But our responsibility, however God responds, is to keep on praying until you see God answer. This is how we give God an incredible gift of our trust throughout all the different seasons of our life. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, I mean, he really drives this point home. He says, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone seeks. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. It's like Jesus is trying to find every different way that he can say that. Have you understood yet? Okay, fine. You don't fully understand? Let me give you this illustration. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? All the parents in the room are like, no, of course not. That would be ridiculous. Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people, solid burn, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? The answer to the question he's asking there is an infinite amount. 
He will infinitely pour out good gifts to those who ask him for good things. So the generous life becomes an invitation to bring your needs to Jesus as a gift of trust in him as the high priest. And then thirdly, we see that the wise men bring a gift of myrrh. Myrrh is admittedly the weirdest of the three gifts. Myrrh is the socks of the Christmas gift list. Uh, it's, it's, this one's a, it's actually a little bit like if the wise men had come and given Jesus a coffin for Christmas. Okay, it just, It's actually most like that. The reason we know that is because myrrh was, was known as an embalming agent. You don't embalm babies when they're brand new and we're celebrating their arrival into the world. Here's some embalming fluid. It's like, happy birthday, Jesus. Here's a gift for when you die. How terribly morbid is that? Unless you understand why this baby was born. Right? This particular baby was born specifically so that he could conquer death. And you can't do that unless you've gone through death. Now, we happen to know that it didn't happen for about three decades later. And we're not 100% convinced that these wise men fully understood the meaning of what they were doing as, uh, prophetically as they were giving uh, Myrrh, an embalming agent. Certainly there was another use for myrrh. Myrrh was also used uh, as, as, a, as a part of the incense that was given to God. But differently than frankincense. Uh, so on one hand we see that myrrh was given to Jesus as this prophetic gift that was an embalming agent saying this baby is destined to die. And his death is going to be so significant that at the beginning of his time on earth we're going to prepare this person for his own death. That, that sounds morbid, but in the context of giving a gift to the savior of the world it's incredibly prophetically meaningful. It's actually quite beautiful if you think about the reason that Jesus came into the world in the first place. But when we begin to understand a little bit more about the, the other uses for myrrh, we, we probably see what it was that was the heart behind the wise men giving this gift. Now, if you'd indulge me a bit of a long passage of scripture, um, I don't know why I asked you for that. I've got the microphone. I'm going to now read you a long passage of scripture. That's what I should have said. In Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 22, uh, God is giving some instructions to Moses as all of the, the worship elements are being set up. And it says, then the Lord's said to Moses, collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of pure myrrh, right there, right at the top, myrrh is in the list, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant calamus, and 12 and a half pounds of cassia, as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel. Also get one gallon, gallon of olive oil. Like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy anointing Oil. So myrrh becomes an ingredient for a holy anointing oil. And then we find out what it's used for. It says, use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and all its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the wash basin with its stand. 
which you can read about before uh, this passage in Exodus chapter 30. These are all of the instruments used to worship God. He says, consecrate them or set them apart, make them pure and holy and special. Consecrate them to make them absolutely holy. After this, whatever touches them will also become holy. Anoint Aaron and his sons also, consecrating them to serve as priests, and say to the people of Israel, the holy anointing oil is reserved for me from generation to generation. It must never be used to anoint anyone else, and you must never make any blend like it for yourselves. It is holy, and you must treat it as holy. Anyone who makes a blend like it or anoints someone other than a priest will be cut off from the community. Okay, so myrrh was a part of this anointing oil that was used for two purposes, and only two purposes, to consecrate the temple and to anoint the priest. And you were never allowed to use it for anything other than that. Now, that seems like a really limiting sort of idea, but then you remember that Jesus, the high priest, was given this gift of myrrh, and isn't it interesting that the gift of myrrh was given to the one who would be the high priest, and also, did you catch in there where it says, anyone who touches the things that were anointed will himself become holy? Isn't it interesting that the, the wise men gave Jesus a gift saying, you're the priest and anyone who touches you himself will become holy. And isn't that exactly how we enter into the holiness of God? In, by having contact with, relationship with Jesus, the Messiah. And so we see myrrh being used for the tabernacle elements. It has to be used for the tabernacle elements to to consecrate that which is used to worship God. And then you jump into the New Testament. Jesus has died, raised again. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20 says, Don't you realize that your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Under the new covenant, we become the temple consecrated by the priest who was consecrated with the embalming incense. What touches him becomes holy, and you could also make an argument then that because we have been made holy like the temple, that what comes in contact with our lives is meant to become more holy, not less holy. So much of the way that we live as Christians in the world is like we are terrified that if I go out into the world, the world's sin is going to get onto me and I will become less like Jesus. And then we actually create a habit out of that. It was where we go and live in the sinful cesspool of the world for six days and on the seventh day we come and worship Jesus and by the third song maybe we've been cleansed of all of our sins and so I'm worthy now to listen to the sermon. And hopefully that will get me at least to Tuesday this week without getting more sin onto me. And Jesus says, I anointed you with the kind of anointing that should actually have the opposite effect. When I send you out into the world, the world should become different, not the other way around. This is the kind of anointing that you have been given, right? Because you become the temple. 
And Peter offers us this kind of advice in order to live that way. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you should crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into the full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have tasted the Lord's kindness. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Jesus paid the price to make us his temple and sends you out into the world to be a cleansing agent in it. So to give your gift of myrrh then is to present your life first to be purified and then to go and purify. But then myrrh also is used to anoint the priest. And 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we become priests. Starting in verse 5, it says, You are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the, med- through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. If you skip down to verse 8, it says, Those who don't believe stumble because they don't obey God's word and they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. In the time when Jesus was born, the job of the priest under the old covenant was to represent God to the people, to make regular sacrifice for the people on behalf of their sins, and to teach the people how to live holy lives. In the New Testament, Peter tells us that through the work of Jesus, every single one of us has been made a priest. So then our job would be to represent God to the people, to commemorate the sacrifice that Jesus made once for all people and to teach other people how to live holy lives. You might say that to give a gift of myrrh then is to make a sacrifice of worship to God on a regular daily basis, to live sin-free as much as you possibly can, to preach the good news of Jesus, to lead others to the sacrificial lamb that cleanses their sin, and to teach new disciples how to live sin-free lives and to become themselves priests to those around them. Remember the, the hinge point of our, of our text in Exodus that we read. Whatever is purified by myrrh actually becomes an agent of purification. That's your life. That's your job. And whoever is anointed by myrrh is designated for priestly work. This is the sermon that is designed to work me out of a job. Your job is my job. And we all might do that differently. You might do that at the place where you work and in your house, and I'll do that in my house and in the place where I work. Our job together is to be priests purifying the world and teaching the disciples of Jesus how to go and purify the world. So the generous life becomes an invitation to present your purified life as a gift, to be gladly used to expand the kingdom of our king and our high priest. And so we think about the gifts that we're invited to to give this holiday season. We give our gift of gold to Jesus when we submit our lives to him as the king of kings, that there is no higher authority than Jesus. We give our gift of frankincense when we bring him our prayers as our high priest.
and we bring our gift of myrrh when we bring him our lives to, pur- to be purified and to go as priests under his charge to minister to the world. The generosity that we're invited to practice in this Christmas season is to give Jesus our lives. Fully submitted, trusting him in prayer, purified and partnering with him in ministry. And so why don't we take a moment and think about whether or not we are doing that well as we launch into this Advent season. In fact, I just want to invite you right now, whether you're in this room or joining us online, to simply close your eyes. And in closing your eyes, I want to invite you to take stock of your life. If you take a moment to examine your life, you can ask yourself three questions to examine your life. Is Jesus the king of my entire life? Is he the king of my life? Is he the king of my entire life? Is there any place where today would be a gift of time for you to make confession? Another question as you take a moment to examine your life would be, is there something that you should be praying about, but you have struggled to trust God with that request? would be a gift of a moment for you to say, God, I name that need before you. I give it to you as prayer, as a gift of trust. I choose to trust you. Would you minister to this need? And a third question we can ask ourselves would be, have you been living your life for your kingdom or for God's? In every moment of my life, my actions, my desires are driving me towards building a kingdom. There are moments where the building work of my life will end in a kingdom that makes me feel very comfortable and puts me in charge. God invites us to build his kingdom. spread his story, to point people to him as king. As you reflect on these questions, what is the gift that Jesus would invite you to give to him today? A gift of faith, submission, trust, commitment to work and labor for his kingdom. What would your week actually look like if you really brought that gift to him. What would change about your life if you fully submitted, if you became a person of prayer, if you partnered with his kingdom in every day of your life? And finally, what commitment are you prepared right now in this moment? Are you prepared to make to the King and the priest, Jesus. And I just want to give you another moment. 
there is anything after this moment of examining your own life that you would say, there's something I need to say to Jesus today. I'll give you a moment now to pray. Jesus, King of kings, High Priest of heaven, Lord of lords, Savior of the world, lover of our soul, as you sit today at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, the saints. We bring you the gift of our prayer. We are so grateful for the privilege and the honor to have access into your throne room through prayer, and we praise you in our prayer. God, for those of us who have lifted requests to you today, would you answer our prayer? And we choose to say to you, God, we trust you. However it is that you decide to answer those prayers, we trust your judgment. We trust your leadership. And whatever it is that you would call us to do, we say to you, God, King of kings and Lord of lords, you are the ruler of our lives. So we live fully submitted to you. God, from this place, would you send us to be a blessing to the world in your name and let our lives be a gift to you as we work to grow your kingdom in your name to your glory and for your honor in Jesus name amen in a moment, I want to pray a blessing over you, and then that's how we'll actually dismiss our service. But first, I just want to give you a practical five-step process that you can engage, and then I'll pray this blessing. We'll just leave this on the screen for you, because I know several of you are going to want to snap a picture of this. But here are, here are five things that you can do this Christmas season as a practice of bringing Jesus your gifts in simple ways. So we wanted to offer this for you as a, as a gift for you as you walk out of here. And maybe even if you want to call this a challenge, this is our Advent challenge this season. And it begins with this, be with the church every single week for worship, to learn together, be with the church. I know it can be tempting to go and have a very, very busy schedule. Uh, be with the church this season. I would challenge you to read scripture every single day, looking specifically for areas where God is inviting you to submit your life to him. Very practically, what would it look like for you to keep a prayer list updated of prayers that you pray on a daily basis. And every single time you hear somebody has a prayer request, you would add that to your prayer list. You can do that on your phone. You can do that in a written journal if you want, but keep a list of things that you are praying about. This fourth step might sound a little bit terrifying, but if you do it right, it can be incredibly liberating. We would invite you this season to practice confession of your sins, first to God and then to a small group of trusted people. That does not include your social media followers. 
that might not even include everyone in your circle of friends or who lives in your household with you, but find a small group of trusted people who will point you back to Jesus, who understand grace because they've been given it as well, and will extend forgiveness to you and lead you to the cross. And then fifth, point everyone in your life to the hope of Jesus. That fifth one is probably gonna take a little bit longer than Christmas season. Point everyone in your life to the hope of Jesus. I was talking to my wife recently about how there's some areas in our lives where we want for the people around us and even for our own lives to be never pointing towards us, but always through us to Christ. And let that be the point of our lives. Amen. Let me pray a blessing for you as we conclude our gathering today. My friends, in the name of Jesus, I bless you like this. May this Advent season find you receiving a gift of time. And you're pausing, you're resting, and breathing. May you find the king and priest to be present with you. May you be quick to lay your gifts at his feet. May your life be a gift of surrender. May your prayers be answered. And may your ministry be effective and honoring to the Lord. May you be richly blessed. And may you richly bless the Savior of the world with your life. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.